The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have Stephen Clifford. He is the author of The CEO Pay Machine. If you have ever wondered why executives in public companies in America are paid more than just about anybody else, and not a little more, not 25 times, like it used to be in the, before 1980, or 50 times, which is more or less what it is in other countries, but 500 times what the average worker gets, uh, this is going to be quite a fascinating conversation. Uh, this is not the usual screed from the far left of the political spectrum. Clifford is a former CEO. Uh, he's a, been a board member on numerous companies. This is somebody within the corporate corporate firmament who has just recognized how completely absurd executive compensation has become. Uh, he criticizes his fellow board members. He criticizes the so-called independent outside advisors. He has lots of things to say about the consultants. Uh, he calls them some pretty uh, nasty names, says they're completely compromised and don't work uh, for shareholders. And he discusses the impact of, of just the gross excess pay, not only on shareholders, which he says is, is unfair, but the impact on, on companies themselves. The more highly paid an executive is, very often the worse the company has done as well as the economy and society at large. Excessive executive compensation has ramifications. Uh, listen, what's 10 or $20 million to a multi-billion dollar company? It doesn't sound like a lot. Well, it turns out there are reverberations from that throughout the company, the economy, and society at large, uh, and they're substantial and significant. And not only that, but Clifford suggests that it has a very significant negative impact on future economic growth. So with no further ado, here is my conversation uh, with CEO and board member and now expert on executive compensation, Stephen Clifford. My special guest today is Stephen Clifford. He is the former CEO of King Broadcasting Company and National Mobile Television, he has served on the boards of directors of dozens of public and private corporations, and he was special deputy controller of the city of New York during the city's fiscal crisis in the 1970s. He is the author of The CEO Pay Machine, How It Trashes America and How to Stop It. Stephen Clifford, welcome to Bloomberg. Honored to be here. So you're a surprising person to write a book about 
executive compensation, to write a critical book about executive compensation. You were the CEO of multiple companies. You've sat on numerous boards. You've advised on executive compensation uh, to the companies you worked with. How did this come about? It came about because I was working on boards. Uh, these are smaller companies. These aren't Fortune 500 boards. Uh, but we were using the same system that the consultants uh, put in at all companies. And as I was sitting there and serving on the comp committee, I said to myself, you know, this system doesn't make any sense. This is a crazy system. And so to... Um, I said that to some members of the comp committee, and they said, oh, no, no, you don't understand. This is just how comp is done in this country. This is, consultants have it all worked out. This is how it's done. Trust so, us. <laughs> so, I started, so I started doing some research on my own to bring my fellow comp committee members around. And the more I got into it, the more I realized it wasn't just a, a stupid system that gave the CEO the wrong signals and uh, led the CEO to do wrong things. Wrong incentives. Wrong incentives, perverse incentives. But it was also terrible for the, for the country. <clears throat> it was bad for the economy. <clears throat> and so <clears throat> I started doing even more research, and everything I did told me this system's insane and it's hurting a lot of people. Let, let's put some flesh on the bones. <clears throat> and, and, and this data comes... From, from your book, since 1978, CEO pay in America has grown 90 times faster than the pay of the typical worker. Go back to 1978, the average large company chief executive was paid about 26 times more than the salary of the average worker. Today, it's somewhere between 300 times and 700 times. How on earth did that come about? It came about because the pay consultants started in roughly the 1980 or so. And as they started to get clients, they realized that they had data on what other CEOs were paid. Now, until this time, CEO pay had been established really on the basis of internal equity, how the CEOs pay mm -hmm. uh, compared with everybody else in the company. And that's why that ratio 20 to 25 stayed stable from 1945 through the late, eight, late 70s. But they came in, they had this data, and it was a great sales tool. So they said, now, you got it all wrong. CEO pay should depend on what other CEOs make. And so uh, what we'll do is we'll establish a peer group and we'll tell you what other CEOs in these comparable companies make. And now, let me you interrupt you here and ask, why should what other CEOs make be relevant to what we're going to pay our CEO in our company? It should have no relevance whatsoever. How, so how is that sales job affected? Well, the sales job is effective because... When you go through all the steps here, what it does is it greatly increases the CEO's pay. So, of course, they want to hire these consultants. The CEOs want to hire the consultants. The boards kind of want to hire the consultants because the boards don't really – they're happy when the CEO gets paid more. Mm -hmm. uh, why is that? Why are the, They're all golfing buddies, or why do they really care? Well, let's start with every most boards, the majority of people pay on the board are CEOs or ex-CEOs themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, so there's a little bit of tribalism. There's at a work. little bit of tribalism. Uh, secondly, 
they like to be able to hide behind the consultants and sure. say, hey, we, we, we hired experts, you know, we had, the, we had the best people in and they went through all the data and this is mm-hmm. an objective uh, measure. Now, the interesting thing about this is the way they get paid has nothing to do with the market. These are people that talk, they love the free market. Meaning the, the market for, the labor market for chief executives. Exactly. There is no, in fact, there isn't much of a labor market for, for chief executives. Uh, <clears throat> when you look at chief executives, to be an effective chief executive, you have to know a tremendous amount about a single company. Right. You have to know its finances, its marketing, its competition, its personnel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Most of that knowledge is not worth much outside that company. Right. So, you know, see, companies rarely, rarely go outside to hire another CEO. 75% of Fortune 500 CEOs were internal promotions. Really? That's yes. amazing. And So, see, in other words, the, the, the skill set that an executive has probably isn't all that transferable to a different company unless it's in the exact same industry. They are not LeBron James. <laughs> LeBron James can take his skills to any NBA team and improve it. Uh, CEOs can't. And, you know, <clears throat> only 2% of the Fortune 500 CEOs were previously CEOs of a public company. That's interesting. CEOs jumping between one large company and another happens about once a year. And when they do, they usually fail. The failure rate is is quite high. You know, your reference to external equity reminds me very much of what took place during the real estate boom. Everybody, the appraisers used comparables. So what starts to happen in a rising market, it becomes this self-fulfilling spiral and everything goes up. Because other houses are going up. Is the same thing taking place well, with CEOs? That, that's exactly right, except it's a built-in spiral. It's not just that it starts to spiral. <clears throat> what happens is you start with your peer group. Okay, mm-hmm. I told you they assemble the companies. Well, surprise, surprise. Companies choose peer groups that have highly paid CEOs. Uh, it's not an objective data set. It's not an objective data set. The book is filled with some fascinating data points. This one really stood out to me. Between 2011 and 2014, there were four CEOs who earned more than $100 million a year. These companies could have paid these CEOs 90% less and gotten the exact same performance from them. How, How do we end up in a situation where people are making hundreds of millions of dollars uh, on the backs of shareholders. Well, you have what I have uh, termed the pay machine, mm-hmm. and each year the companies crank up this machine. And as I as I mentioned, it starts with a peer group of of, of highly selected uh, other CEOs making a lot of money. Then the company quote benchmarks their CEO. So where does your CEO rank? Well, we're a good company, so everybody benchmarks their CEO at the 75th percentile of this group. Mm-hmm. No, Just but, random. Well, no, we're, we're better than 75% of those companies, so our CEO should be, make 75 What's the, the basis percent. of assuming you're in the top quartile of what I assume is a fairly competitive marketplace? Uh, uh, simply corporate pride. There is no, That's it. Simply corporate pride. We're, we're good. 
Huh. They, there's there's never any performance. They don't have to perform at 75th percentile at all. It's just corporate pride. One would think there would be some correlation between, <clears throat> hey, if we're declaring ourselves in top quartile, then we should be top quartile in profit growth, top quartile in revenue gains, top quartile in market share gains. Yet those seems, things never seem to come up. They don't come up at all. They don't come up at all. It's just corporate pride. So, so this, to me, looks like a wealth transference scheme from shareholders to managers and insiders. It, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't use the word scheme because that's as if it were deliberately and conspiratorially designed. What happened is the consultants came in and step-by-step, mm-hmm. This machine was built, and different different things were added. And it's a very complicated system. Now, on the face of it, most of the steps in here by themselves seem to make sense. Mm-hmm. When you put them all together, they guarantee with mathematical certainty that the CEO's pay will escalate. And I regardless I, of performance, regardless of performance. So I, to me, this is more something that evolved, but it evolved with two rules. One, the individual part of the machine had to have a certain surface logic, Mm -hmm. and two, it had to increase the CEO's pay. And so each of those were selected for an evolution. So now you have a machine that guarantees that CEO pay will rise eight, nine times faster than the average worker's pay. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. I really like this quote from your book about stock price and profits. Quote, the price of your stock will tell you whether to maximize today's or tomorrow's profits. Explain that. Well, that comes from uh, Jensen, who mm. you know is a, the father of the shareholder value school. Right. And a this, terrible idea, which has been pretty thoroughly debunked over recent years. It has been debunked, but this is still the basis of CEO pay. Today. Really? So, so for those of you who may not be familiar with shareholder value, it's an idea that really got its biggest push from Milton Friedman and the Chicago School of Economics, which essentially says that instead of worrying about various constituencies, clients, suppliers, employees, etc., um, a corporation's sole job is to maximize profit, maximize shareholder value. Fair, fair statement? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think... And that that school said, okay, stock price is the only thing that counts. So every decision you make should be made by what will maximize the stock price. So you know you may have to trade today's profits for tomorrow's profits. Well, how much should you do that? Well, mm-hmm. look to the stock of your look to the price of your stock. That will tell you how to do it. Huh. So so the idea is not necessarily thinking long term, but it's whatever you can do to raise prof, raise stock prices today. Well, the, the theory behind that is that <clears throat> the market looks long-term. Mm-hmm. So your, your, your stock price today, and in the Chicago school, everything's completely rational. Every actor is completely rational. So your stock price today is the discounted value of dividends plus the stock price 10 years out, et cetera, and it's all perfect. And so the market looks long term. So that's why you can, that's why you don't have to really look long term because the market will do that for that, you. That sounds so backwards. The way I had always <clears throat> learned what 
public companies should do is focus on the long-term health of the company and the stock price will take care of itself. Uh, that's right. This stood it on its head. Mm-hmm. This said that the, today's stock price tells you how good you are long-term. And you could see why executives who are compensated with stock options love that concept. Well, the worst, the worst thing about this is what, how it focuses and misallocates company investment. Give us an example. In, between, in, in the last 10 years, S&P 500 have spent $3.7 trillion buying back their own stock. Mm-hmm. Now, they buy back their own stock. Retire to, it, essentially. To retire, but they buy it back to keep the price high. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not buying it back because it's undervalued. Right. They're buying it; it's already high. They're buying it back to keep the price high. Uh, what because, do they spend on R and D over that same period? Well, I can tell you, they cut R and D by fifty percent over that wow. same period. They cut plant and equipment by fifty percent over that same period. And I'm going to use something I'm stealing from your book, okay? Uh, because I thought it was so stunning. When I talk about three point seven trillion. A trillion is a hard number to get your head around. Mm-hmm. Reading your book, you had an example that a trillion seconds is 32,000 years. Mm-hmm. And that, to me... It's a long time. <laughs> that, that tells you how much a trillion is. And you've got $3.7 trillion that could, be, could have been invested in product development, R&D, new technology, uh, job training, all these things for for long-term health. And instead of doing that, they bought back their own stock. I mean, this is eating, this is, America's eating the seed corn. American industry is eating its own seed corn. Let's talk a little bit about how this impacts uh, inequality in the country, not just for employees, but across across the whole board of society. And I want to start with some, again, more data from the book. You reference that this is a fairly uniquely American phenomena. In Japan today, the average ratio between CEO pay and worker pay is 16 to 1. It's a little higher in Denmark. It's 48 to 1. It's about 85 to 1 in the UK. How is it more than 500 to 1 in the US? It's so incongruous with the rest of the corporate world. Well, there are two explanations. One is that... U.S. CEOs are 30 times more valuable and productive than Japanese CEOs. That would be one explanation. That's a a little bit of a stretch. Uh, Another explanation is something's gone terribly wrong here. That seems more likely. Let's look at how this impacts uh, the overall economy. You actually say that this isn't just a function of within the corporation there's pay inequality. You suggest this affects work and morale. You suggest this affects research and development. This affects how we actually build a society. Expound on that. Well, it clearly hurts the companies. I mean, we've talked, we have talked about how they've cut R&D and cut investment to keep mm-hmm. their stock price high. Uh, a bigger – and they – course waste tens of million dollars on the ceo pay but that's now a small the pushback part. is oh that's pan company does billions it, of dollars exactly. a year who cares i mean so they so they waste that that's a small part of the cost a bigger part of the cost is the effect on 
company morale. Mm-hmm. I mean, when the <clears throat> CEO is making 500 times what you make, and he comes out and he says, there's no I in team, and we're all in this together, <clears throat> it's pretty tough for you to swallow. Right. And, I mean, this has been proven by study after study, that the more the, uh, the gap, the worse the morale. How significant is the correlation between companies that spend billions on share buybacks and the reduction of things like R&D and plant investment, et cetera? Well, it's, it's a one-to-one correlation. The, really? more you spend, the more you spend on share buybacks, the less you have to put into R&D or put into uh, reinvestment. It's a finite pie. And, and you, got, you got so much money, and the more... The, they're using 50% of their net income is used to buy back shares. The share buybacks are twice what they pay in dividends. The data point I thought you were going to go to from the book was that when you look at a company like Dell, I don't mean the EMC version of Dell today, but Dell, the direct build-to-order PC maker, over the course of that company's history, they spent more on stock buybacks than they ever made in profits. The entire company's history, which, if you think about it, should be impossible. It, it 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 should be impossible, and somebody should have woken up and shorted that stock very quickly. Well, it much. eventually had some real difficulties, to, and it, it wasn't necessarily Apple. But let's, let's bring this back um, to income inequality. There's a data point I have to reference. Again, since, C, since 1978, CEO pay rose 10x. The median salary in America rose from 48000 to 53000 over the same time period. This is obviously inflation-adjusted. Right. That's uh, less than half a percent a year. What does this do to uh, a, an economy? Well, it is very bad. This level, the level of inequality, we income inequality we have in this country, is very bad for economic growth. Why is that? Well, to start with, 70% of our GDP is consumer spending. When the consumers don't get much money... It's hard to spend it. It's the Henry uh, Ford thing. I have to pay my workers enough exactly. to buy my product. Exactly. And now the money, when the money goes to the one-tenth of one percent, as it has, uh, let me stop here they and say that, invest, that, that about buy. since 1980, 40 percent of all the gains and growth of the economy have gone to the one-tenth of one percent. Now, that's 124,000 households. So the reason the average American hasn't gotten a raise all the money has gone to a very small percentage of people. They don't spend that. I mean, how many yachts can you buy? You know, after you have your fourth, you're not going to buy your you're fifth. You're pretty much done. Right. Yeah, so, a powerboat, a sailboat. <laughs> I'm, usually that's enough. Yeah. Number one, you don't get the consumer spending. Number two, inequality imposes uh, a lot of hidden costs. Uh, Such as? Health care. As your income goes down, your ability to pay for your health care goes down. Mm-hmm. Uh, it impo- it uh, makes the country less healthy overall. Is in, that what you're implying? It does. Uh, incarceration rises. Crime rises. Right. Uh, we've seen crime falling over the same period when CEO, although we've, even as crime has fallen, we've seen incarceration continue to rise. I could go to a study, but the comp- it's, I think it's too complex to explain the, the, a study that says, well, crime would have fallen a lot more if mm-hmm. there had been less inequality. That makes sense. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the impact of corporate board members and what they have done to pretty much rubber stamp this. Uh, again, another data point from the book that, that I find is so fantastic. Board members at the company Qualcomm, quote, 
from 2009 through 2014, authorized the repurchase of 238 million shares at the cost of $13.6 billion. And at the same time, total shares outstanding increased 2%. How on earth can that happen? Well, they were printing new shares to give to their executives. But 236 million shares was not enough to reduce the share count? The the, the facts speak for themselves. That's astonishing. So, in other words, based on these prices, they gave away... $14 Fourteen billion dollars in options to their management. Uh, that that is what the mathematics would say. So, what is a board member who has a fiduciary obligation to a company? How do they process that information? What leads them to say, "Yes, I think that's a good idea." Uh, what leads them to say that is they say, first, do they get stock? Oh, of course. Well, they get stock. Uh, depends on the company, but they tend to get stock. Right. They get uh, a fee overall. How do I comp- get a gig like that? That sounds like a it's good. It's a great gig overall. <laughs> at, at, at companies the size of Qualcomm, you'll be getting uh, three, four hundred thousand dollars a year in stock and cash right. for attending, you know, six meetings. Not a six bad committee. side gig. Very nice side gig, and. The way you justify it is you say, well, I'm not on the compensation committee, but these are my fellow members, and they've studied it, and they have the good consultants. And so whatever the compensation committee proposes Mm -hmm. almost gets rubber stamped because you don't want to question your uh, board members. And by the way, if you bring up a lot of questions about uh, CEO pay and what the other board members— Uh, you're not going to be asked on too many other boards. And as we've said, they're, they're a nice gig. Uh, and then you can justify it by saying, well, look, it's what the real problem is what all these other companies are doing. They're paying their CEO so much that we have to follow. We've got no option. We're forced to follow them. It's not our fault. Because if we don't, they're just going to hold their breath till they turn blue and not come to work. Well, it, the... the what they say is, oh, if we don't pay them, they'll go someplace else, which is nonsense. They won't go someplace right. else. They got no place to go. Huh. That that that's astonishing. So I'm curious, what sort of pushback have you gotten on the book from your fellow board members or or executives? I have gotten zero from uh, from them because why would they want to make noise about this? Uh, they have no effective. <laughs> So they could just for they what could just, they're doing. They just ignore it or go away. Here's a quote that I, I love. This is this is terrific. A good corporate board is like a club where you work on interesting problems with intelligent, congenial companions. Travel, good restaurants, amenities are all provided free of charge. Best of all, instead of paying club dues, the club pays you. So that sounds like a sweet gig. It is a sweet gig. When I was when I was a Coming close to retirement, I decided that there was a very good gig and lined up a lot of board spots. And it's mm-hmm. been, I've, I've enjoyed it. It's been wonderful. I've been well paid. Uh, I have, And yet you're biting the hand that feeds you. I believe that corporate boards have been incredibly irresponsible when it comes to CEO pay. I tried to be, as I learned something about this, I tried to be more responsible. Some boards didn't like that. A couple of boards I was able to to convince to move to a different system of pay. Other boards just ignored it. 
So here's an interesting quote. In theory, shareholders elect board members to represent them. But in actual practice, corporate boards are self-perpetuating. Well, corporate boards nominate who is going to be on the board. Mm -hmm. Uh, Absent a proxy fight or sometimes some egregious uh, corporate behavior, the nominations go out and nobody opposes them. Nobody says, oh, I'm going to run for that board seat. And so every nominee, I would say the re-election of boards is roughly the same as the re-election of the North Korean Politburo <laughs> that, uh, you know, if you're nominated, you're going to be elected. Let's put some flesh on those bones. In 2012, 17,081 corporate directors were nominated for board positions. Of that over 17,000 nominees, only 61 were not approved. Less than one half of one percent. As, as I say, we, we rival we rival North Korea. Yeah. That 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 is just astonishing. So, let's talk about independent directors on compensation committees. Wasn't that supposed to be? Hey, we're going to use outside <clears throat> board members. We're going to use independent experts, and therefore, they don't feel. Um, obligated to to grease the CEO there's some objectivity why hasn't that worked out well it hasn't worked out because really what has changed it's not that the it's not that the people are not in independence doesn't mean that the fundamental dynamic of the CEO being your friend the CEO may have asked you on the board but you're still independent mm-hmm. uh, the gotcha. the fact that you have these in built-in pay machine systems that guarantee that the CEO... That's the status quo. That's the status quo, and so you're an independent director. You come on, and this is what you do. This is how pay is handled, and the CEO gets a 15% increase every year. Why would you, as an independent director, start to make all sorts of uh, ruckus about this? Nobody else is. Let's talk about the old boys club, the old boys network. The average age of board members is 63, and women accounted for less than 20% of total directors, minorities 13%, and the reappointment rate was 94%. Why is it so problematic to get a more diverse board? And, And the question that also comes up from this, why do we have so few women as not only board members, but CEOs? Well, actually, you have more as board members than you have as CEOs. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at Fortune 500, less than 5% of uh, CEOs are women. Mm-hmm. And um, I think if you're looking for the number one characteristic of a CEO, you look like one. Right. Tall, good hair, Tall, handsome. Tall, good hair, commanding handsome, voice. good voice, good presence, uh they're all they're all cast in Hollywood, right? Right uh, out of Central Cast, exactly. And so competency doesn't really seem to make that much of a you difference. You know, if if you look at it, you'll find that looking like one is probably more important than competence. That's incredible. It is incredible, but but they they are taller. They are in on better, average, they're on, a few inches taller. They're than, three inches taller. Wow, they're in better shape. Mm-hmm. They, they they work out. They're trim. Uh, I got to get busy. <laughs> and uh, am I, I too old for human growth hormone at this point? Uh, I, you know, I don't know. I haven't kept up my studies so, on that. So let's talk about who the shareholders are these days, 
and their impacts. Mutual funds essentially own the vast majority of equity stock. Why aren't mutual funds saying, hey, you guys are, are you know, giving away the store and we have a fiduciary obligation to our investors to make sure you don't misbehave? Well, of course, it's not just mutual funds. If You know, as you know today, uh, index funds. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you know they're half the market now? It's still a smaller percentage than active funds, right. but it's growing rapidly. Right. right. And Bill McNabb is the CEO of Vanguard and said they were setting up um, committees to essentially reach out and be proactive with corporate management on some of the more egregious practices. Well, I think I think Vanguard is always been one of the leading companies and one of the most responsible companies in that field. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have huge investors, you know, the hedge funds almost always just vote straight management. Uh-huh. Uh, the big, big investors, TIAA, CREF, sure. uh, people like that, they almost always back management. Uh, it's very rare for these, for hedge funds or big institutional investors to Vote against management. The rule had always been, if you don't like what's going on, sell your stock. Right. Don't, don't try and... Makes sense. Well, what about the opposite? Let's talk about activist investors <clears throat> who basically go to a company and say, you guys are doing it wrong. Your managed team is terrible. You got to make some changes. Right. What is the impact of activist investors on compensation? Uh, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen compensation be the major issue of mm-hmm. activist investors because, as we say, let's say you're wasting. You know, you paid your CEO a hundred million dollars, right. and you should have paid him ten million dollars. Well, frankly, ninety million dollars is not enough to raise up an activist investor campaign. Right. I mean, you you've it's got. It's not going to move the needle on a earnings per share basis, right? Right, so you've got to you've got to say that it's it's generally that the stock is terribly undervalued, and you can think, you know, well, if I split off this division or, or split off this, I can, you know, get a huge pop on the stock. That's when you go in and try and do a. We have been speaking with Stephen Clifford, author of the CEO Pay Machine. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for a podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things executive compensation. Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments, suggestions, and feedback. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the podcast. Stephen, thank you so much for doing this. I, I find this topic to be fascinating. I've, I've read about and written about this over the years because it just seems to be so abusive and so unfair to shareholders, and yet there's so much built-in inertia, the new 
compensation machine is very difficult to thwart. It, it it's become part of the firmament, and I assume it's going to continue for a while. In the book, you talk about a trinity: Michael Jensen, Bill Clinton, and Milton Rock, uh, who who together or separately helped create the climate that we have. So first, who is Michael Jensen? What did he do? Michael Jensen is a professor of, uh, he was a long time at the Harvard Business School. Uh, he was kind of the founder of the theory, founder and uh, evangelist of the theory of shareholder value, that the only thing that matters is the stock price. He was a student of Milton Friedman when he went to he graduate went school He went to in Chicago, Chicago yeah. uh, uh, during the Friedman-esque, uh, you know, the market is always right. And then Milton Rock? Milton Rock was the first pay, first big pay consultant, and unlike the rest of the pay consultants, who I say are, are, are uh, essentially uh, corrupt whores, uh, <laughs> he... Uh, Not charlatans? <laughs> You're going to go right to full-on? Uh, absolutely. Okay. Milton, Milton Rock wasn't that way. I mean, Milton Rock was, was, I think, very serious. What Milton Rock never considered was how the system would work once everybody used a pay consultant. Uh -huh. And so how the how this spiral would inevitably start once they were all using the same system. He saw it long before it began. I mean I, he retired early eighties. Yeah, right? he he retired early eighties and, and I've got I've he, he happened to be a pay consultant. He didn't consider, gee, what if the whole world used these pay consultants? Well that would mean everybody would get a twenty percent raise every right. year. We're we're all in the top twenty five. That's right. Uh, That's right. Exactly. Huh. And then Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton uh, campaigned as, uh, in 1992. He saw this as a political issue, and he said, I'm going to tax everything over a million dollars. Right. He got elected. In terms of actual dollar I'm sorry, not tax. Excuse me. I am not going to allow tax deductions for all pay over a million, over a million dollars. dollars. Cash. Well, he, yeah, uh, cash, stock, anything. So he got in. He got in office. Uh-huh. And then he was lobbied by the business groups that said, well, this is, this is critical for American industry to pay for performance. Right. And so they revised it and said, uh, if it relates to performance, then it's tax deductible. Well, so, and therefore stock options become... The stock options by, the, by themselves were in unlimited amounts were, were taxed. Uh, any, you know, so anything that related to... Well, you can make anything and say it relates sure. to performance. Ironically, this this is the thing that truly opened the floodgates to CEO pay going crazy. This was part of the Bill Clinton, the budget reconciliation bill that had the big new taxes coming mm -hmm. in in 92. It passed without a single Republican vote. Really? Yes. That's <laughs> amazing. And then, which is which is really surprising when you see what it ended up doing yes. for the moneyed class uh, and the executive uh, class. Absolutely. There was a wonderful NPR Planet Money a podcast on this exact topic, and it, it really fleshes it out. So let's talk a little bit about the inertia and how entrenched the CEO compensation machine has become. Uh, are there any hopes that, that we can get out from under the scheme, or is this going to be with us for the foreseeable future? Uh, boards uh, and directors will not reform this system uh, by themselves. You have this new say on pay, which I don't believe will make much difference. Now, say on pay under Dodd-Frank, uh, 
every at least every three years, a corporation must have it offer its shareholders the ability to have a non-binding vote on whether they approve or disapprove of the pay system. What's happened is that two or three or four the most egregious pay systems and the most egregiously overpaid CEOs, there's a, a campaign on say on pay, and often it's effective and it will affect that, uh, those three or four CEOs. The problem is they're all egregious. And so just focusing on any one just doesn't get it done. Right, right. I mean, you've got you've got every one of these uh, CEOs is ridiculously overpaid, and the whole system is causing so much harm to the to the country that uh, hoping that say on pay is going to make any difference is uh, you know it's like swatting a swatting a few flies. So so we can't <clears throat> talk about executive compensation without bringing up Yahoo and Marissa Meyer. She, she joined the company, it seems like, less than 10 years ago. Uh, revenue has gone down. Profits have gone down. Market share has gone down. The thing of value at Yahoo is their stake in Alibaba, which Marissa Meyer had nothing to do with. And she's been compensated to the tune of just about a quarter billion dollars. How on earth does something like that make any well, sense? Well, uh, this is... Most of CEO pay turns out to be pay for luck, not pay for performance. Mm -hmm. uh, all, all of the studies have shown that uh, CEO compensation and performance, no matter how you define it, is at best weakly, weakly correlated, and mm -hmm. at worst, negatively correlated, which means the more you pay the CEO, the worse you perform. Makes now, sense. Marissa Meyer was an example of this. She was there five years. By every measure, her per the performance of the company was poor. Now, mm -hmm. uh, maybe that's all her fault. I don't think it's all her fault because I think that the CEO is is not responsible for everything that happens. You know, the CEO has limited abilities to move a big ship. Mm -hmm. uh, so Mar Marissa didn't do a great job. Does she get singled out because she's a woman uh, and they're making her the poster girl of overcompensated execs? Well, I could give you executives who have been equally overcompensated, mm -hmm. uh, who are men. Let's let's name uh, a few. Well, I'll I'll just take uh, you name you certainly name names in the book. Well, you know the the book. What I did was I took the four highest paid CEOs. The, the people named the highest paid CEO from 2011 to 2014. I didn't select them because I thought that they were uh, examples of overpaid CEOs. I just took I, the highest paid I CEOs. just took the highest paid. So l let's say you wanted to look at baseball players, and I took the, the baseball player who had the highest batting average for the last four years. Right. Uh, now, when I got into that, it turned out that, the, first of all, if I took the baseball for baseball players with the highest batting average, you would have heard of them. Right. And there's only so many people who can hit a 100-mile-an-hour right. fastball or, right. or a hanging curveball. That's right. It sounds like lots of people can do what these various executives do. Uh, it would appear to me that uh, baseball players, let's say, seldom go from superstars to bums in a single season. Mm-hmm. 
this happens all the time with CEOs. Right. I mean, we've seen we've seen CEOs crash and burn. You know, they're brilliant. They're they're the new poster child for for CEO, for top CEOs. Next year, they're out of a job. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of, look, I was a CEO for fourteen years. When I was in the right place at the right time, I was a genius. Right. When I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, I was a moron. Mm-hmm. Most of success is being in the right place in the right time or something called fit. That Meaning? You, that your skills, the particular skills you have, fit for what that company needs at that time. So let me take an icon of American business, Henry Ford. Mm-hmm. Henry Ford was a superb fit for the automobile industry when mass production and manufacturing efficiency were what was critical. When it became a question of customer styling, Henry Ford was a terrible fit. Right. Any color as long as it's black. Exactly. So, you know, uh, when when you're fit, when you have the right fit for the right time in the company, you look pretty good. Mm-hmm. When your skills are are so I'm a, I'm a finance. so serendipity and luck really pay a big big role. Uh, the race is not to the swift. <laughs> <laughs> so let let's talk a little bit about consultants. I reference them in my book. You spend a lot of time talking about consultants, and I I, I have to begin with a quote, as I so often like to do, from Charlie Munger. I would rather throw a viper down my shirt front than hire a compensation consultant. So Charlie is not a big fan no. uh, of them. Why do you think that is? Well, because compensation consultants are part of the, are, are a parasitic profession. Okay. Uh, You'll have to put a little detail to that. Uh, compensation consultants come in and say, we're going to give you all sorts of studies in an objective way to pay your CEO. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're very unctuous and, and uh, you know, pretend to be very serious. Mm-hmm. And basically what, they, what the CEO knows they're going to do is juice his pay. That's that's all. That's all these compensation. It's a wink consult- and a nod, and everybody knows. What's coming. You don't even have to wink and nod. You just look at the record. And this is a big business. I was stunned to learn from your book, management consulting industry. I would have guessed it was a couple of billion dollars. It's a two hundred billion dollar industry. Oh yeah, yeah. Now that's I'm shocking. I'm not. I'm. I don't paint all management consultants with the same brush. I mm-hmm. I find compensation consultants. Uh, uh, how big of that two hundred billion dollar pie are the compensation? I, I I I could not find a number on mm-hmm. that. There's nothing. There's nothing public. Uh, I would you know all of all of these companies have all big companies have compensation consultants and uh, you know they're paid a million to ten million dollars at these places, mm-hmm. uh, and really the only thing the only thing they do is give you a big report and a lot of slides and a big PowerPoint and goose the CEO's pay. It's that simple. So here's an idea for any billionaire who wants to pursue it. You know, we've seen the way the think tanks manage to push ideas out into the world, even though they may not be great ideas, such as uh, shareholder value. Someone needs to form an uh, executive compensation think tank they need to dog all of these consultant companies and essentially debunk every time they put out a slide deck, a study, something, 
And eventually, by doing that, someone will find a way to um, put into the ether, put into the media and the conversation, hey, these guys are wildly overpaid, and for everything they say, you have to come up with the opposite. And I, and I nominate you to do that. Well, uh, And the book I, is a good start. I, I, do, I don't think that would work. Why not? Look— does media cor- pressure cor- impact cor- it? Or corporate no? directors would have to be brain dead not to know that their CEOs are wildly overpaid. I mean, how can you realistically go to you know attend a meeting and say, "Oh yeah, okay, so we're paying Joe this. So Joe's made forty million dollars this year. Well, that's all right because you know his peers are all paid that." Let me give you an example. Suppose in nineteen eighty we had insurance consultants mm-hmm. and they came to the boards and they said hey we got a great new way to do insurance see we're going to have a peer group we're going to see what all your peers are paying for insurance right okay and then we're going to have you pay at 70 at the 75th percentile because you're a horrible because you're you, well no no this is a great idea that <laughs> you, so you're a good company you'll pay there and by the way because you need premium insurance you're, you're, top need, quartile. you're top quartile and by the way then um We'll set for the for the insurance company. We're going to set performance goals, and if they hit those goals, we'll uh, we'll double our uh, our premiums. Okay, that's a, so, that's so, a cost. So, so you accept that? You you say you, the company accepts that? It's now 2017. You're on the board, and you say, "Hey, I've been looking at our insurance. You know, the, the cost, the real inflation adjusted cost, has gone up a thousand percent, ten times." Uh. And our, cover- any com- our, our coverage is worse. Mm-hmm. Why, why, did, why are we listening to these consultants? Well, that's the position they're in with CEOs, but they won't ask that question. So what has to be done to pressure <clears throat> board members, either through the media or okay. what have you, to, to well, do my, this? My view, and this, is, this will be, uh, is that you need a blunt instrument. Okay. You need a very blunt instrument to to uh, wake these guys up. A law, a regulation, um, uh, a law. Unfortunately, I mean the Dodd Frank rule that requires <clears throat> the say on pay and the publication of this that hasn't seemed to thwart no, anybody. No, what what my, my because nothing else has worked. I'm saying you need a very blunt instrument, and what I'm saying is you need a luxury tax. I'm taking a page from Major League Baseball. Oh, really. A luxury, you know, the Major League Baseball says, look, if your payroll gets over X, you got to pay a tax. So I'm going to say, if you pay your CEO everything over $6 million to any executive, uh-huh. you got to pay a tax to the federal government, dollar for dollar. And by the way, I'm going to include everything. What, you know, these numbers- The jets, the clubs, the, all the perks they get. Uh, the, biggest per- the biggest thing, you know when a CEO cashes in his stock options- that's not reported as pay. Yeah, that, so let's talk about FASB a little bit. There was an ongoing debate, primarily driven by Silicon <clears throat> Valley, which was, do stock options count as compensation? Right. And one would think they should count as compensation, but they well, don't. Well, what they, they, they finally forced them to say, yes, it's compensation. So this is the way then the accountants and the companies got around that. They said, well, when, when we, Barry, we're going to give you a million options at 20. Mm-hmm. Stock is currently at 20 now. So those million options, we'll run it through a Black-Scholes model or something like that, and we'll say, okay, each option is worth a, is worth a, a dollar. 
today. Mm-hmm. So we say you got compensation of a million dollars. You got a million options. Now, seven years later, the stock is at 50. Not because you've done a, a good job, just because the market's yeah, the market's up. done really yeah, well. Right, right. So you now cash in your million options for a gain of $30 an option. You pocket $30 million. Mm-hmm. That's not considered compensation. That is, when you read these ratio is 350 to 1. Now, doesn't the company have to go out when you exercise the option and, and replace that stock? It either has to replace that stock or print more stock. Or so it's either it dilutive or expensive. It's it's either dilutive or expensive. The shareholder loses. Mm-hmm. Uh, but according to the company, this, uh, this money came from the tooth fairy. He just came in in the middle of the night, put $30 million under your pillow, and... Uh, very nice of him. And, you know, you left out the other h- half of that story or the other ta- a possibility of that story, which is the stock doesn't go to 50. The stock goes to 10. Right. At which point the board reprices the stock options down to 10. Right. There are no I don't even know if there's tax owed because you paid tax at 20. And clearly that calculation was wrong because it's not worth 20. It's worth 10. That's right. Uh, so you might even uh, have a little fun with your tax amendment, or you amending your previous return. Right. And then if subsequently that stock runs up, the company's in the if same it, situation. It goes back to 20, and all of a sudden you're, ma- you're making money because, you, of, because it's been repriced. Because we had to give you the incentive. Now, this is, this is one of the worst parts of it. Mm-hmm. The idea that these huge uh, option packages – and various other pay packages are necessary to motivate you. Now, CEOs are highly motivated to start with. You don't get one to be would a imagine. CEO. You don't get to be a CEO if you know if you show up at eleven o'clock every morning. Um, a pay system sh- is should only channel the motivation properly. Uh-huh. Now, financial incentives t- at the CEO level. Uh, tend to have, uh, because they're so powerful, tend to narrow your focus completely. You're a CEO. You can make $30 million this year if you increase earnings per share by X percent. Let's say your whole bonus is based on right. that. You're going to make that. You're going to make that. By hell or high water, you'll by figure out a way to make water. that work. You're going to make that. I mean, look, I... I as a CEO, I could always make uh, earnings per share jump up and dance the Macarena with a you know <laughs> few accounting changes, but but you're going to make that. I don't care what you have to do. You're going to make that. You are going to neglect everything else. You're going to focus totally, totally on that. Suppose I suppose I said Barry, your performance measure next year is uh, how many headlines your your radio story makes in the New York Post. Okay. Okay. You're going to get $30 million if you make. You're going to be interviewing anybody who'll make a headline. You don't care what. Right? Uh, I mean, $30 million is a powerful, powerful motivator there, right? You could ruin your show, but it's $30 million. (laughs) And and executives do the same thing. It's so powerful that, that, uh, and by the way, this has been shown in study after study and in experiment after experiment, that... For all, for all, um, for all except repetitive, repetitive tasks or really distasteful tasks like you know knocking on doors and selling magazines, mm-hmm. financial incentives 
tend to harm performance. You're, you're, you perform best, and I'm sure you perform best, when you are motivated by your conception of what a job well done is. Right. You know? There's pride in, in workmanship, there, absolutely. I know that's old school, but I think it, I, it, it's important. It, it's, 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 it's not old school. It, in fact, is what, how humans perform. Mm-hmm. Um, and <clears throat> so you're saying stock options are motivating CEOs towards one thing, which is stock price. Yes, yeah, it's it's it's, and that's why that's why, and and you combine that with the theoretical justification of uh, shareholder value, uh-huh. and this is one of the, I think this is one of the worst things that's happened to American industry. So there are two issues that raises, and and a, a shorter one and a longer one. Let's start with the shorter one. First, I've read numerous times people said, well, when you give stock options to executives, their interests are aligned with shareholders. But that doesn't make sense. They haven't taken any risks. They haven't put up any money. They're not thinking long term. To them, all they need to do is have um, the stock price go up, whether they're responsible or not. How on earth does that align them with the interests of the it shareholders. It is amazing. I look at these company proxies, and you know, they have 40 pages on executive right. compensation, and the word alignment is used at least 20 or 30 times in each proxy. And you're absolutely right. There's no alignment at all. I mean, heads, heads I win, tails I break even with an option. Unless there's a reprisement in which even tails right, you win. Right, which even tails I win. So let's talk about the bigger issue, which is what I think... The, the compensation that is attributed to stock options gets so wrong. When you are giving a huge pile of stock options to an executive, you're essentially compensating them not for how well their company does relative to their peers, not for how well they do, but you're compensating them based on how well the stock market does. Absolutely. As, as, as you know, 70% of a company's stock movement has to do with the general stock market or the industry. And the sector, right. The two of those are at least 70%, if not more. The company itself is responsible for about a third, if if that much. Yeah, if that much. And so, hey, if you're in the right industry and the right market, you're going to get big stock uh, option gains, even if you perform much below your peer group. This is another thing that, that, that stuns me. We say we're go- they always say, okay, we're going to pay according to a peer group. Mm-hmm. And then they say, well, but you're, you're going to be paid at the 75th percentile because we're a good company. They never, ever test that you have to perform at the 75th percentile or you have to beat your peers at anything. That's shocking. There is never, a, there is never that test. In every one I've ever looked at, once once you set your base at 75th percentile of the peer group you are not held for any performance you're the, then you may have a uh uh your compensation may be linked to your stock price it may be linked to earnings per share but nothing about beating these peers right uh, the the old line is i'm astonished but not surprised <laughs> so so here you, you raise the question that that uh i was thinking of which is how did this company do relative to revenue versus their peers, relative to market share, relative to patents filed, relative to right. product introduction, relative to market penetration, relative to 
geographic expansion, relative, you could come up very easily with a dozen or a hundred different metrics that you could use alone or in combination with each other that would fairly say, hey, how has this company done relative to other companies in the space, relative to other companies of the same size, relative to any reasonable peer, and those gains are the basis for our bonuses and compensation. You could, although that that would be that would be highly complicated. I I prefer a much simpler system. Which would be my simp- my my system is you get a salary, pretty good salary. You know, you get a salary two three two million bucks, and you get restricted stock. How can I live on two million dollars? Well. You know, maybe you know what the dues are at the golf club. It's and I don't even play golf, but still, it's very expensive to be uh, a CEO. Uh, uh, let me tell you, I've uh, I've lived very well. Uh, I've lived very well, and I belong to a very nice golf club, uh, and I've never made two million dollars a year. That's a so, that's a new book so, title: so, Scraping by yeah, on two million by a year. On two million. So, uh, I say. Restricted stock, and then there's one performance. Restricted stock, not an option, but a restricted stock. Restricted stock. How long do they have to hold that stock they before they can sell? They have to hold that stock for uh, until about five years after they've retired. After they've retired. Not even after they've left the company. After I'm they've sorry, retired. I'm sorry. Le- after, I'm sorry. After they've left the company. So in other words, you're making them think long-term plus five. And there's only one performance requirement. Mm-hmm. Long term plus five, that stock has to perform better than the S and P five hundred. Really? Or they so lose, in other words, or they lose half of it. So in other words, half the S and P five hundred is going to underperform. One would think. I mean, the distribution. Could That's be- right. So I'm I'm just saying. Look, you get a, you get a lot of stock in the company. So you're you're a shareholder. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's and your your interests truly are aligned. Your interests truly are aligned, and you're a long term shareholder. Because you can't even get out the day you quit the company, uh, and there there's a complicated way of how you can reduce this over time, and um, and your test is that during that period you have to perform better than the other guys, or half your restricted shares get forfeited. And you mentioned blunt instrument. The way to make this work, one would imagine, would be to create a tax incentive if you use this plan. And a higher tax uh, if you don't. That's right. That's right. That would. Uh, I. I didn't. I didn't have that in my book, but I think that's an excellent idea. Well, the the only way to get anybody to adopt something is to <laughs> give them incentives I, 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 or or disincentives. Uh, and the current plan should you combine your you were three quarters of the way right. there your luxury tax right. with you don't pay the luxury tax if you do it this way. You we, had both components. We, we, in we, it. we should have. Uh, I, I, I should have had this interview before I read the, well, can I, the book. <laughs> uh, these are your ideas. I'm no, just combining no, the I two. Th- I think, I think, Add the luxury th- tax with this. I think it's an excellent idea. It, it's it, it's a way to make sense. And Second edition will have it in there it. There you go. You, you, can, you can edit that. Um, before we go to our, our standard questions, our favorite questions, I had um, – I had one last question I had to ask you, which I, I thought was hilarious. A board member once asked you, how do you measure the first year's progress on a three-year turnaround? So in other words, people have bonuses and incentives every year on what was supposed to be a three-year turnaround. 
how can you legitimately measure well, where you are? Well, one of the problems is with the bonus system, you get an annual bonus mm -hmm. as if everything important falls nicely within, within, within a calendar year. Yeah. And the analogy that I use to show you how absurd an annual bonus system is, the analogy as I use in the book is, Think of setting a bonus system for generals in wartime. Right. Because you know, we need to motivate them. Because you know, they're not self-motivated. No, they're not self-motivated. They're not responsible. And, and we need to, you know, they'll perform better if we give them a bonus. Well, that's the same that you have. To, I mean, right. it's so absurd. But so they'll invade easy targets. Exactly. They won't fight the difficult wars. <laughs> exactly. It's, exactly. It, it's, it's pretty crazy. I mean, if, you, if the Soviet Union... I'm Soviet Union. If, <laughs> that shows how my age. If if Russia wanted to truly debilitate the army, the the military, and the United States, it it would introduce an annual bonus system. Huh, that that's amazing. So so let's talk <clears throat> a little bit about some of our um, standard questions, and these are the things I ask all of my guests. Um, tell us a little bit about your background that people don't know about you. Uh... Well, people don't, I, I doubt your listeners know anything about me, so... Um, they will after this okay. conversation. Um, the first, uh, the, the, the job I had the most fun at was when I was uh, deputy controller of the city of New York during the financial crisis. That was pretty interesting. It was fascinating. I mean, the cast of characters I was working with uh, and the issues I was working with, and I was a kid, I was 34 years old, mm -hmm. so that, that, was, that was a lot of fun. My father-in-law used to own the New York City general obligation bonds. Ah. And when, I think they had a call function in 2000, something like that. And I remember he came came to me and said, all right, I have these bonds that are called the New York City GOs. He w was buying them for years in the 70s. They've been paying 12, 14, 16%. Right. What can you get me and to replace <laughs> them? And I said, I could get you uh, some Three. treasuries at four and a half, five percent. If you want muni bonds, they're just a tiny bit riskier, but it's tax free, yeah, yeah. and they'll pay about four percent. Right. He's like, "What the hell am I going to do with that?" <laughs> Were you there during the yes, introduction I was. of that? Yes, I was. That, that yes. was quite quite a period of time. Yes, he, it was. My father-in-law, who is no longer with us, correctly surmised New York City uh, is still going to be around. So that was a that was uh, a great investment. Yes, to say the least. Tell tell us about some of your early mentors who affected. Um, the way you approach being a CEO or a board member? You know, uh, I would say the two early mentors I had were when I was in government uh, mm -hmm. in, in New York. Uh, one was a fellow named Bob Wilmers, who is uh, now a longtime uh, CEO of M&T Bank. Uh, oh, sure. And uh, the most... Uh, as a matter of fact, his bank, which I think is about the 20th biggest bank in the country, has but very fast growing recently, has been the most successful uh, bank stock uh, mm -hmm. among all banks. It's grown at about 20 uh, 20 percent a year from forever. And then uh, I just had lunch with him, and I just had lunch with another one of my former mentors, Jay Golden, who was the controller of the oh sure, uh, brilliant, brilliant guy. And they, they New were, York City or New York State? New York City. Mm -hmm. I definitely recognize the name. Uh, who affected your thoughts on executive pay? Again, you're not a typical CEO slash board member. What steered you? Who steered you in in the direction you moved? You know, I'd have to. I, nobody steered me. I just kept as a, I, you know, I I was doing this 
at a company level to try and to, to say, look, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, the incentives are all wrong and they're perverse and they're going the wrong way. And then as I got into it and into it, I said, this is an outrage. And, you know, I like to write. And mm -hmm. so I started to write about it. But no, nobody, no, I, I steered myself. Huh. That, that's that's interesting. Um, this is uh, a, a listener question that, that we've adopted every week. And it's, it's actually one of the most popular questions we get. Tell us about some of your favorite books, fiction, nonfiction, compensation-related or not. Okay. Uh, in the last three years, I would say my two favorite books were Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. Sure. And I'll tell you a story about that. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, Why Nations Fail. Why, that's a, that was a big book that came out a year or two about ago. About two years ago. Uh, yeah. MIT professor? Uh, Har one Harvard, one MIT, mm -hmm. I guess. But what let, was the author's name of that? Oh, I know it's that. A, it's Damas I, I know that. Okay. I'm going to pull that up right now. Hold on a second. Let, let, let me tell you a fascinating story about Daniel Cohen. Okay. <clears throat> I, read, I read his book, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. I love the book, but I thought he had one... Darren Asimoglu. Oh, Asimoglu, right. Who, who okay. is a recent um, guest on the show. Oh, and was will he? Be, okay. he? will be broadcast later uh, this month. Well, he's a brilliant, absolutely brilliant thinker. Well, by the time this broadcast, <clears throat> it will have been last <laughs> okay. week or so. Okay, so da Daniel Kahneman, Nobel Prize winner, wrote this brilliant book. I thought he had one thing wrong. I thought he had made... I thought he... I had a better explanation for one of his examples than he did. Okay, let's hear. So I, I, I don't need to go into it. I sit down, and I, this is at 10 o'clock Seattle time, 10 a.m. It's mm -hmm. 1 o'clock Princeton time where he is. I write him a, uh, an email. I said, uh, dear Mr. Kahneman, I, I enjoyed Dr. your book. Dr. Kahneman. Doctor, I, I, should have, <laughs> I enjoyed your book, uh, but I think you got one thing wrong. Ten minutes later, 1.10 Princeton time, Mm -hmm. I get back an email saying, thanks for the kind comments about your book. Uh, your explanation uh, uh, would, uh, would seem to be pretty good. However, we checked before we did this, and here's why our explanation is right and yours is wrong. And I said, here's a Nobel Prize winner, 110, answering an email from somebody he's never heard. Mm -hmm. I, I just found that astonishing. He, he's a fascinating guy. Yes, I, yes. I, when I'll t I, we don't have time for it, but I'll tell you a, a funny story about him, which I actually relate in in that podcast. But he's really a, a fascinating guy. Um, so that's one book. Uh, why Why Nations Fail? Mm -hmm. It was uh, to me a, a complete eye opener. On, fascinating. Uh, uh, I never thought. I love a book that all of a sudden makes you think. The way I've been thinking all my life is wrong on this particular issue. A perspective issue. changer. Yes, yes. I mean, just a, 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 what they call a parad paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what else? What else has... Uh, give me one more book. Uh, well, Unless if, you have more. Uh, I would have to... You know, the most influential books that I've ever read, I would say that uh, Richard Dawkins' A Selfish Gene sure. probably, probably influenced my thought more than any other book I've run across. And that was 1975. Wow, that, that, that's fascinating. Um, so uh, what do you see as the next shifts in the world of executive compensation? Is this going to continue on this trajectory with no ability to change it, or are we going to start to see some changes? Uh, 
I don't think we'll see any changes until it becomes a political issue. Mm-hmm. I know. I, isn't isn't it a bit of a political <laughs> issue already with with uh, income inequality and or is that still a minor factor? I don't see it as a political. I don't think boards are scared. Boards uh-huh. are going to have to get scared that, and say to themselves, you know, if we don't reform ourselves, somebody else is going to. That's when it will start. Uh-huh. They're not in that position now. Nobody, you don't see anybody threatening legislation. It's got. Right. To, I think it's got to get to the point that where they say, you know, if. We better do something Had about Had Bernie this. Sanders won the election, exactly. they might have been a little more nervous. Exactly, exactly. And if you get, <laughs> you know, if in the next Democratic primary you, you get a, you get another a, a Sanders-type <laughs> type candidate who who's not quite to the, you know, a little to the right of Bernie, but starts saying, if elected, I'm going to do something about this, then a I populist. think— Yeah, then I think boards might, but huh. not until then. That that's quite that's quite fascinating. So tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Uh, we could be here a long time if I was to <laughs> give us going, just one. going to tell you about all the times I failed. Mm-hmm. And I looked at that question and I thought, I'm not sure I learned anything. Uh, you know, I failed because I was too bold, and mm-hmm. then I failed because I was too timid at different times. So no lesson. I, I failed when I. F- when I didn't consult enough people, and I failed when I consulted a lot of people. So I've had, as a CEO, you're going to fail a lot. So it's the luck and the fit issue more than anything else. I think think the one thing I've learned, be in the right place at the right time. Always helpful. Um, Tell us what you do to keep mentally and or physically fit. What do you do to relax outside the office? I get tremendous amounts of exercise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I find, as I uh, as you age, I'm 74. Right. And, you don't and, look 74. And, well, thank you. I'm, uh, I'm 36, and I look terrible. <laughs> uh, as, you, as you age, uh, uh, physical exercise is the absolute key. It, it sends messages somehow to your body mm-hmm. that, hey, you got to stay alive, you got to stay alert. So I do a lot of exercising. Uh, Gym or anything in particular? Well, I do. I tennis, golf. I, no, I, well, I, I work out. I do about uh, forty minutes on the elliptical every morning as I read the new, newspaper. Uh-huh. Then I do uh, about a forty minutes strength, uh, stretching, strengthening, and then I play nine holes of golf most days. Really? Yeah, but I play. You must be pretty good by now. No, I'm not that guy. Well, actually, I'm I, at age 74. I'm playing the best golf of my life. But what I do is the courses. I live in in the city of Seattle, but I belong to a course. It's about five minutes from my house. Uh-huh. I play either by myself or in a twosome, and we do it in an hour. Uh huh. Nine. Are holes. you using a cart? Or are you walking? I'm on? walking. And who's carrying your bag? I'm pulling it. Really? <laughs> on a pull cart. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty good. Um. All right, our last two questions. These are our favorite questions. I know we have to get you out of here uh, in a few minutes. So what sort of advice would you give to a millennial or someone who's just starting their career as it relates to compensation? Uh, Well, I'd have to repeat. uh, Avoid the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. Be in the right place at the right time. Always good advice. And, And our final question, what is it that you know about executive compensation and stock options and boards today that you wish you knew 20 or 30 years ago? You know, if I had known all of this 20 or 30 years ago and, and seen it at the start, I might have been able to do something to uh, 
to arrest it at that time before it got um, amazingly out of control. I mean, it it's so blatantly in, insane. I I say it's this is it's kind of like doctors who used to bleed people. Right. Now, why did they bleed Leeches people? Leeches and what why have did, you. Why did they bleed people? They didn't know better. Well, no, because everybody bled people. <laughs> I mean, this is what doctors did. So this is the way a lot of people think about. Well, this is what this is how we do compensation. This is this is how a board's supposed to work. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Oh, I really well, thank you for having me. This has been a, a, I've really enjoyed the talk here. We have been speaking with Stephen Clifford. He is the author of the CEO Pay Machine. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and check out all of our other such talks. You can see the nearly 150 or so over the past three years at Apple iTunes, Overcast, Bloomberg.com, and SoundCloud. I would be remiss if I did not thank my head of research, Michael Batnick, and my recording engineer, Medina Parwana. Taylor Riggs is our producer slash booker. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.